0: Sought after for their success and for consistently putting people first, treating employees and customers with respect and helping others succeed. Now these same CEOs, the mentors, want to help you achieve your highest level of profitability, success and personal fulfillment in life, at work and in business. Now, here's your mentor. Well,
1: hello and welcome to the Mentors Radio Show. I'm Rick Burdico, your mentor host, and today I'm doing an unusual special show, taking a little different approach to challenging our thinking about life and work. I'll be speaking with Dr. John Eastman, former dean at Chapman University Law School, where he is currently a professor of constitutional law. He is also the founding director of the Claremont Institute Center for Constitutional Jurisprudence, on whose behalf he has appeared before the Supreme Court of the United States, in over 100 cases of constitutional significance. He served as a law clerk for Justice Clarence Clarence Thomas and has appeared on numerous TV and radio programs as an expert guest. But the title I like the best is what Hugh Hewitt refers to him on his radio show on this very network, One of the Smart Guys. So you will not want to miss this show. His topic is government laws and policies that don't just challenge but threaten our business and our personal freedom. Stick with us. But before we start the interview, write down this number, 844 8265 That's 844-610-TALK. Call it anytime, 24-7, and leave a comment or a question for any of us or our guests. I'm sure Dr. Eastman will inspire us to action today. Also, you can listen to this or any of the shows at www.thementorsradio.com, as well as read the show notes for today, or any of the other shows archived there. That's www.thementorsradio.com. But enough of the business. Let's get on with it and meet Dr. John John Eastman. Hello, John.
2: Hello, Rick. It's so nice to be on your program.
1: Well, thank you for being on. It's a great honor. I I need to tell the, I don't know how long we've known each other, but it's got to be at least 30 or 40 years, isn't it? Dr. Eastman? Yeah,
2: we, we, I think we were both uh, five years old when we first met then. <laughs> we, I think
1: we were five. I think that's exactly correct. Um, we both Actually, go back if I, to.
2: If I recall, your, your, your dad or your uncle or somebody was one of, on my campaign committee when I first ran for Congress many, many years
1: ago. That was my dad. That's correct. He was. And that's how I got introduced to you. And then for years, uh, we belonged to the same organizations. And, and in fact, you uh, instructed one of my kids in school, as I recall.
2: I did. and If I recall, he did well. and I went on <laughs> and becoming a very successful attorney himself.
1: He would like to feel that, actually, I'm sure. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, John, in, maybe in a way of introduction, uh, I know that you were struggling uh, burning the midnight oil filing a brief before the Supreme Court earlier in the week, and I'm assuming you got that done, right? <laughs>
2: well we you know we, we got uh, that one was in, in another case but our mo- our most recent brief in the supreme court we also burned the midnight oil but a uh, very important brief in the uh, hawaii versus uh, trump case uh, dealing with uh, executive orders on immigration
1: well i think that would be a great place for us to start i'm sure a lot of our listeners uh, don't have the understanding of exactly what happens and how the court works and why a professor a phd J.D., professor in Orange, California, is doing things with the Supreme Court with respect to something that's happening in Hawaii. So I thought maybe if you could give us a little bit of background, maybe even talk a little bit about your early years when you were clerking for Justice Thomas, um, that might be a good introduction, and then we can lead into what these challenges are that you're experiencing.
2: Sure. And, and I'll do it by way of, a, uh, since we're, we're in the week after Mother's Day, of telling a story from my mother, who, who passed away a few years ago now. Um when I uh, when I graduated from college and then went on to graduate school and got just not just a master's degree but a Ph.D. and I graduated from that, she sent me a set of coffee mugs that says I have a, a B.A. and an M.A. and a Ph.D. Now all I need is a job. <laughs> 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 uh, and so I went off to law school to get a law degree because my wife and I had both determined that um, the prospects of, uh, of a, a, a long and, and solid career in the academy for somebody of my political views was not very strong. And, and, <laughs> and she also was a PhD. And the chance that we would get at the same university or not even in the same city was, was you know, uh, too too remote. So I went and got this uh, law degree and, and sure, right out of law school, I got a, a, a law clerkship for, first at the Court of Appeals and then at the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, and there are only four law clerks, for justice uh, every year. That's 36 people out of all of the law students in the country that graduate every year. So it, it's fairly prestigious and fairly select group of people. So I wrote my mom a note. I said, I got that job. And she said, a law clerkship? Is that like an internship? When are you going to get a real job? <laughs> so, so mothers have a wonderful way of, of keeping you humble. Um, but what the law clerks do is uh, help with the justice. Um, each justice's chambers in the Supreme Court of the United States is like a mini law firm. Um, the, the senior partner, the, the managing partner, and and uh, you know the, the name partner all rolled up in one is the justice. But the four associates uh, that help him do the work of the court or her do the work of the court. Those are the law clerks, and uh, uh, and and as Justice Thomas reminded me when I came in, it's an intense year for the law clerk because, as he said, you're the sprinter. Uh, I'm 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 the marathon runner. I'm going to be here for 25 years, so you've got to give me every ounce of effort you have the year you're here, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so that I can keep doing this year in and year out. And uh, that's what we did. We helped. We did the research. We we helped the dra- justice uh, with with the drafting of opinions. Uh, of course, the the final work product and the ideas and the the positions are always his. But the law clerks. Uh, uh, have a tremendous opportunity to um, to help in that process, which is very significant. And also, the one aspect of our government that most people don't see much about. It's not on C-SPAN. It's not in press conferences like the executive or C-SPAN with legislative hearings and what have you. What the justices do is behind closed doors until they issue their opinions.
1: Well, we have one justice that issues their opinions on TV now, <laughs>
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> and, and some of them, you know, and sometimes there'll be uh, cantankerous disputes. And so justices will read their opinions from the bench, um, uh, particularly if it's a dissenting opinion and they're really uh, upset with the direction the majority went. doesn't happen often, but uh, uh, it does on occasion. And it always uh, gets the Supreme Court bar watchers, uh, you know, uh, kind of gets their attention.
1: Well, did, did you get paid for this?
2: Yes, it was a, a, a full-paid government attorney salaried position, uh, and, uh, and like I said, it's, it's only for one year, uh, which is a phenomenal year, but it's also such an intense year. It's probably not something you could keep up at that pace for, for much longer than that.
1: So I, here's the key. Was mother happy? Mother was happy. That's right. Mother was happy. And
2: uh, she realized, uh, and my brother actually came and visited one time and got some wonderful pictures with the Justice. Uh, my wife and kids were uh, came visited the Justice chambers. We have a wonderful picture of, of my son sitting on the Justice's knee, reaching for the candy jar on the coffee table in front. <laughs> so,
1: well, that, That'll that definitely be an heirloom. Well, uh, John, we're coming up with a break. I know you're very familiar with the radio world, having spent many times in radio and in TV as a, a guest and an expert witness, so to speak. Um, but uh, I'd like to pick up when we come back, maybe you can talk about some of those cases. And I'd always like, if you can, help us to figure out how our, we, the listeners, can benefit in our life and our work. So stick with us, y'all. We'll be right back, right after this word.
3: Hi, I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. feelgreat.vip to learn more
4: better life better business hi i'm christoph Naur. i'm a certified business and life coach helping business owners increase productivity profits and improve personal life i'm the founder of balance six money health relationship time management self-improvement and higher power i coach business owners to work smarter not longer to have time for better personal life I hold you accountable for making time available to balance six to nurture yourself and your relationships and making more money with less stress get off the hamster wheel and I will show you the secrets to real success in case you're wondering about my accent I came from Switzerland more than 30 years ago but I assure you my coaching will be in excellent English Visit our website at balance6.biz. That's balance6.biz.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: are well, welcome back. If you've just joined us, you're listening to The Mentors Radio. I'm your mentor host for today, Rick Brudico. We're talking with John Eastman. Dr. John Eastman is a college professor, He's a PhD, a doctor, a constitutional expert. And his, his thesis is that there's a mischaracterization of our Constitution, and it's threatening the way we work and we live. So before the break, John was giving us a little bit of background of how he got to where he is and how he clerked for Justice Thomas. And so I think, John, I'd like to pick it up there if you don't mind. Uh, as, as I recall, you're you're Expertise or your chosen uh, field of study is the U.S. Constitution. Is that right?
2: It, it is uh, Constitution, uh, but also the political theory of the American founding, on which the Constitution is based. And uh, I think I think those two components, uh, neither one of them can exist properly without the other. So, um, uh, myself and but also the the senior fellows at the Claremont Institute. Um, are devoted to recovering the, the political theory of the American founding, the principles on which our country was based, and how they played out in the, the, the wonderfully spectacular structural constitution that we have.
1: Well, and I, I think we really need to delve into that because um, I think I follow this quite a bit, and uh, I've obviously spoken with you about it over the years many times. But I'm I'm kind of I don't know if the average person realizes how much our co- our Constitution, for lack of a better word, is being mistreated, misread, misrepresented, and misquoted.
2: Well, and and, and, and becoming irrelevant. Uh, although I mean, this is this is one of the great success stories of of, of the last half century is the revival of the devotion to the Constitution. But you go back and you look at constitutional law textbooks in the 19. 19- late 60s, 1970s, Um, many of them had quit even bothering to reproduce a copy of the Constitution because it had become irrelevant. The the Constitution was no longer the supreme law of the land. It was whatever the latest judicial opinion interpreting or misinterpreting the Constitution had become the supreme law of the land. And, And therefore, it was those opinions that were the things that mattered, not the original text of the Constitution itself. And so they they kind of dropped it. Well, a number of uh, organizations like the Claremont Institute, with which I'm affiliated, uh, founded in 1978, but the Federalist Society, a group of lawyers in the early 1980s, devoted to recovering the original meaning and purpose of the Constitution. And uh, that led to a a famous speech by then Attorney General Edwin Meese in the Reagan administration about originalism. And, uh, you know, 33 years later... Uh, uh, most people, even the, the judges that didn't like that line of thinking, feel compelled to at least pretend that their opinions are rooted in the Constitution's text, rather than just judges from on high deciding what they think the right rule ought to be. And so that's a that's a, a dramatic shift of recovering this, this wonderful heritage we have of rule of law by a written Constitution.
1: Yeah, and, and how how long is the written Constitution?
2: Well, it's
1: not that long. Uh,
2: right. <laughs> you know, it's it's not that long. You can read it in 15 minutes through to right. you know, cover to cover. It takes a little bit more than that to kind of understand some of the language is is a little bit archaic and and the meaning has changed over time. I'll give you a wonderful example. Um, there's a clause in the Constitution nobody pays much attention anymore. States can't impose uh, levies or duties on imports. Well, mm-hmm. most people think today, what's an import? Well, something, wine coming in from France or, or um, uh, computers coming in from China or whatever. Those are imports. Uh, well, uh, in, in 1787, if, if Maryland imposed a tax on tobacco coming in from Virginia, that was also an import. There was a much mm-hmm. greater focus on state sovereignty than we have modernly. And the, imp- the word import applied to both, and so, you know, so you've got you to kind of steep yourself in the language of 1787 a little bit to make sure that your understanding of what that language was is accurate. But once that's established, uh, if you're going to have a written Constitution, you've got to stick with what's written, because otherwise you're assigning governing authority over to some unelected judge to decide what he would like it to be and then impose a rule by edict on what it shall be.
1: So here's a simplistic question, and I can only ask it this way. Look, from my perspective, words are words. They mean what they mean. Why and how can they be misunderstood so completely? And that's why I asked you how long the Constitution is. I think half the rulings that come out are probably five times longer than the Constitution. So well, they, how, they, how how does this happen?
2: Well, it, it happens because— um... <laughs> You know, lawyers make their living on uh, on words. and and if if they can find words that can be manipulated into meaning, um, then there's all sorts of additional things they can do that the word itself didn't originally do. Congress finds itself happy to pass statutes that have ambiguities in them. and then and then behind the scenes pressure regulators, to interpret that statute in the way that individual member of Congress wanted, even though he knew if it had been interpreted that way on the front end, they wouldn't have gotten a majority to pass the law in the first place. So there's 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 a a, a collusive a lab, a collaboration that occurs between certain members of Congress and these unelected bureaucrats in the administrative agencies to accomplish ends beyond what the statute actually does. And and then the same thing happens with the Constitution. Uh, you get activist judges who want to accomplish things different than what the Constitution actually allows or permits. Uh, well, if they try and read a perfectly sensible word as though it contains ambiguity, then then they think they're just doing their job and trying to interpret the ambiguity rather than making it up and imposing their own rule.
1: Well, this this strikes me to be. I mean, I know it's the case. I see it all the time on read the press. But it when you the it, it just is the obvious question. I mean. I, most people, I think, realize we have a Bill of Rights, amended to our Constitution, and therefore part of it. And I've always wondered why, if you really think that, if you're the, the, the justice on the Supreme Court that thinks that, why don't you amend the Constitution? I mean, why why try to Mickey Mouse the words around? Let's just make it clear with a you know another amendment
2: well that's that's right and and in fact article 5 of the constitution includes two paths for amending the constitution and one of them is not 5 members of the supreme court deciding that they, things ought to be different than is written um so so we really are ignoring one of those critical aspects of the constitution and when we come back from the break I'll give you an example of something that's very clear, clad in language, where bills raising taxes have to originate, uh, that the most recent uh, massive tax increase in the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, just completely ignored, and yet the court challenges have fallen flat to try and push back against that violation of the Constitution.
1: Well, I'm, I'm going to look forward to that, because I was going to ask you, maybe you can just touch on this quickly. We still have a couple minutes. but uh, So it seems to me, if you look at the Bill of Rights, And by the way, I must say for the audience and for you, I'm not a uh, member of the NRA, I'm not a, don't own a gun, I didn't since I served in the service, so that's not the issue, but it seems to me the words are pretty clear, the right to bear arms. How can the the world, can we look at it differently?
2: So this is the clever lawyering that went into that challenge, and so it doesn't just say there shall be a right to keep and bear arms. It starts off with a preface. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free government, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so clever lawyers about a century ago started saying, well, that means that the right to keep and bear arms only exists if you're part of the militia. Uh, And the militia now is the National Guard, uh, which is government-run. And so one of the very purposes of the Second Amendment, which was to keep an armed citizenry so that they could rise up, not just against foreign invasions or domestic thugs, but but stand as the ultimate check on tyrannical government as well. If the only right to keep and bear arms is if you're working for the government, that, that right all of a sudden ceases to accomplish what they intended to accomplish.
1: It just creates another police force, let's face it, It, that's all it does. It does it.
2: It does, that's right. And so so clever lawyers could take that language and manipulate it to to pretend that the Second Amendment meant the opposite of what it actually means.
1: Well, so after the break, you've promised you're going to give us some examples of this, and I'm going to be looking forward to it. Stick with us, everyone, because you won't want to miss the examples of how we're being and our constitutions being mischaracterized and how it's affecting us.
6: BetterCreditDeal.com.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Well, we're back, and we're with Dr. John Eastman. Uh, he is a constitutional scholar. Um, as I mentioned in the introduction early, he is a, a professor of constitutional law. He was also dean of the law school. And, you know, his, his focus is the Constitution and I'm learning, and hope you all heard in the previous segment. I'm thinking it could be written in Greek or something, Dr. Eastman, because if we all can interpret it differently. Uh, it seems kind of strange. So, you were going to give us some examples and help us understand this a little better.
2: So, so the one example I, I hinted at right before the break uh, is this one. And, and uh, you know, for ordinary uh, mere mortals, the language is very clear it's Article 1, Section 7, the very first clause. And it says, all bills for raising revenue shall originate in the House of Representatives, Mm -hmm. but the Senate may propose or concur with amendments as on other bills. All right, now uh, that seems pretty clear. If you're going to have a bill that imposes taxes, raise revenue, it has to originate in the House of Representatives. Well, why would the founders do such a thing? Well, remember, at the time, the members of the House of Representatives were elected, but the senators were chosen by the state legislatures, not elected directly by the people. The senators also have six-year terms, whereas members of the House of Representatives have two-year terms. And one of one of the most tempting things for government to do is to always raise taxes. Uh, and and what they wanted to do is to make those who had the power to raise taxes directly accountable and most immediately accountable to the people so that if they were raising taxes for frivolous reasons they could be thrown out of office and that would be a very important check on the uh, awesome tax power and so they 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 put this language in there for very deliberate reasons members of the house of representatives are directly elected by the people and they have to face the people for re-election every two years And if they're going to impose a tax on the people that the people were not willing to accept, they would pay the consequences of that decision, that vote, uh, at the next election. And so all bills for raising revenue have to originate in the House of Representatives. Well, what happened with the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare legislation? Well, there was a bill to, to implement Obamacare by a tax increase that was proposed in the House of Representatives. But it did not get a majority of votes because people were afraid of having a tax increase and and losing their next election. So that bill failed in the House of Representatives. There was another bill, had nothing to do with raising revenue, but it did. But it did originate in the House of Representatives. It dealt with a, a recapture of deductions or spouses of of, uh, military uh, members who were killed in the line of duty. So it was not a tax bill, but that bill was sitting over in the Senate in committee. They took that bill, they stripped out all of the language on it, and they poured in the 2,800 pages of Obamacare legislation into that with all of its tax increases. And they said, well, we're just amending a bill that originated in the House of Representatives, and therefore it's okay. And then that was passed in the Senate, and it went over to the House, and it was passed, and that's what gave us the Affordable Care Act. Wow. But it was not a bill for raising revenue that originated in the House of Representatives. This whole thing was patently unconstitutional, um, and, and, and yet we don't have courts willing to say so. That's just one example of many of how the structural limitations on governing power that are contained in the Constitution are just routinely ignored.
1: So in, in, in this case, and obviously, you know, along with what we try to do on this show, th- this has a tremendous effect on our businesses and, and our life. And here's an example of where it was done, I guess improperly. I'm almost afraid to ask, was this the only time it's been, been done this way?
2: No, not at all, because you know they long ago figured out. Well, the, that that other language, the Senate may propose amendments. All we have to do is have an HR bill number, uh, and, and so if you look at the Affordable Care Act law, it's an HR House of Representatives number, even though the entirety of the bill was added by the Senate. So, so th- this is the kind of gamesmanship we've come to unfortunately expect out of out of the U.S. Congress. People who take an oath to defend the Constitution are routinely um, doing this kind of shenanigans to get around the structural limits on their power that are contained in the Constitution.
1: So, you know, you were a clerk in the Supreme Court and probably in the minority at the time, I would guess. But my question would be, these judges are, you know, even whether no matter what their persuasion is, they're obviously extremely qualified, highly educated very knowledgeable of this. How can they possibly accept it? Why, why, when it comes up, don't they say, strike it down, it's unconstitutional? Well,
2: you know, we, we, we've got three or four of the justices now out of the nine that that begin always by looking at the text of the Constitution and trying to understand what that text means. And once that's figured out, that's the end of the case. We've got three or four on the other side of the bench uh, that that at, at least now think that text might be a starting point, but they don't think it's the ending point. They think it just informs what the, what good policy they ought to be handing down from the bench is. And then you got one or two in the middle that sometimes side with the one group and sometimes side with the other. Um, here, here's another example, and I think even of, of more profound consequence on our daily lives than anything else. Congress in Article One, Section Eight. Which is where all the enumerated powers are, and and the fact that the powers are enumerated is, is itself a significant development in in, in constitutional government. You, you think back kind of historically, uh, that you know the king of England had all sovereign powers, and then and then when the Magna Carta is put in place, they carve out a couple of rights that he can't infringe, but otherwise he has all powers. The presumption is he has the power, unless there's a specific statement of right that he can't infringe. Uh, our Constitution turns that on its head, upside down, that the federal government only has the powers that are given to it, uh, and if there's not a power given to them, they can't exercise power. The remaining powers are reserved to the state governments or to the people. So the enumeration of powers is very important, and one of those powers is, is to, quote, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. Uh, You would think that's pretty clear. Congress has the power to regulate commerce, interstate commerce, international commerce, and trade with the Indian tribes. It was trade. Commerce meant trade. But how has that morphed? Well, what does commerce mean now? We, We often treat commerce as synonymous with business now. And so, people think that this means that congress has the power to regulate business and therefore to regulate the economy and therefore to supermanage the re- the economy and to do all things that have any effect on the economy well that's not what the language of the constitution says and if you read the language properly this was designed to prevent you know kind of interstate wars and trade wars and what have you between the states it was not to give a massive power to Washington, D.C. to regulate every aspect of our lives uh, that had some effect on the economy. And so this is just another example of how they have created ambiguity in very clear language and then used that to, to drive a Mack truck through to regulate anything they want.
1: Yeah, and it seems to me, you know, right at the, at, the, at the basis of all this, a couple of major things have happened. One, you know, we started off with the Declaration of Independence referring back To a power greater than us, a natural law of some sort, which we built upon. And the second thing is, it seems to me that we always seem to forget that the states were independent, and therefore, what we really were doing was managing a union. How did they interact with each other, as opposed to saying we're just one amorphous organization, much like other countries are? So, I I, I mean, I don't, I don't know where we go, but but it seems to me somebody's got to sit down and think to themselves. You know, maybe we got to call a spade a spade, face this straight on, look it in the eye and say, we don't, belong, we don't follow the Constitution anymore, so maybe we have to rewrite it. And we can get into maybe a little bit of that after the break because we're up against it right now. So stick with me after the break and we'll hear a little bit more about the Commerce Clause. I hope I've got some questions about that. And you're listening to Dr. John Eastman talk about the Constitution and how it's affecting our daily lives.
7: Hey, professional businesswomen. I know how busy your life is to look your best. Nails matter. The good news is I can save you a lot of nasty chemical smelling nail salon time. Just imagine a perfect manicure in just minutes at home, even while watching TV. No dry time, no smudges, no streaks. And your new manicure will last up to 10 days, often longer. I'm talking about 100% real nail polish. Yes, real nail polish, including top and base coat all in one that can gently be stretched for a perfect custom fit. Gorgeous, vibrant colors, soft pastels, gentle glitter or can't miss designs and nail art. You have options. For about $12 a set, you can even get some free. Choose your colors or designs. Receive them in about three days. Done. Everything you need is included. Polish easily removes and does not damage nails. Check it out, nails4me.com. Nails, the number four, M-E dot com. That's nails4me.com. Hi,
3: I'm the executive producer of the Mentors Radio Show. Usually I'm behind the scenes, but I want to tell you about something special. If you're an entrepreneur like me, you need steady energy and focus. Here's my secret. I rely on science-backed, high-quality, bulletproof collagen protein and other bulletproof products. My sister told me about it. At feelgreat.vip, you can learn the health journey of Bulletproof founder Dave Asprey. Find out what sets these products apart from the rest. Nothing can replace the advice of your medical doctor, but good nutrition can absolutely enhance your mood, energy, and focus, like it did for me. The demands of business, not to mention important time with family and friends, make steady energy so important. With more than 1 million fans, 1 million fans, I'm not alone in recommending Bulletproof. Go to feelgreat.vip. That's VIP, like very special person. Feelgreat.vip to learn more.
0: And now, back to The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Well, we're back. I'm Rick Brutico, your mentor host for today. And wow, I don't know about you, but I'm learning a lot. And unfortunately, a lot of what I'm learning I don't like, but you know what? Better to know and be informed than to go merrily about our way and assuming things are going the way they're supposed to go. We're talking with Dr. John Eastman, a constitutional expert, and he's explaining to us how the Constitution is really being misused, misinterpreted, and laws written that have no basis in the Constitution. i kind of interested in where he led us at the last break, which was the Commerce Clause. So, uh, John, I was wondering... How is it that, at least from my perspective, and it's a very mundane area for me, I mean, it's it's not something I'm involved in every day, but it just seems every time there's a dispute of any kind, somehow the Commerce Clause is invoked to say that it's okay or not okay. Um, can you help us out with that?
2: Well, sure. And, you know, it, it, it's part of it. This kind of plays off of our, our different understanding of the word commerce now. When when you, when you say commerce modernly, you think chamber of commerce, you think business, you think the economy. And therefore you might be led to believe that this power given in the constitution to regulate commerce, which at the time meant trade, it didn't even mean manufacturing or agriculture. It only meant the trade in goods across the borders, the power to regulate the trade across the interstate borders or the international borders. That's all this power was. Um, but modernly, the, the word commerce has a much broader meaning, and so people think that the Constitution has changed in line with that broader meaning and, and played it. But you know, remember I said uh, back in the late 1970s when the Claremont Institute was founded or the early 1980s when the Federalist Society was founded, and an attempt to revive the original understanding of the Constitution started to take root. Well, when the Republicans took uh, control of the House of Representatives in 1994— Um, during the Clinton administration, and, you know, remember the contract with America? Well, one of the things was to start acting more in line with the Constitution when they passed laws. And so they passed a rule in the House of Representatives that that required every law to include uh, language describing which provision of the Constitution authorized the law. that was a very good idea in theory, but it quickly became a joke in practice, because if it was a law that just regulated anything, they just put the language of the commerce clause. And if it was a law that spent anything, they put the language of the spending clause, which itself is is um, very specifically enumerated but has been uh, interpreted and morphed into a, a broad reading that Congress has the authority to spend on anything it that it wants to. So if it involved money, they put the spending clause. If it involved regulation, they put the commerce clause. And every new bill has one of those or the other listed on it. And and and, and it, doesn't, it didn't ever accomplish what the original Contract for America folks set out to accomplish by that rule.
1: Isn't that interesting? When you were talking about the right to bear arms before you went back and quoted the entire uh, first part of the bill, of the Bill of Rights, uh, and you said uh, the Second Amendment I'm talking about now, and you said that – they interpreted back said, well, that referred to when we had a militia, and, and so therefore it doesn't refer to the individual citizens. So somebody had the foresight to go back and think what it meant. Certainly no one can think that the Commerce Clause meant anything but trade between essentially independent territories or in the, as we call them, states. I mean, isn't, isn't there any check on that? Uh, you can't, you know, like, it's like we're using the, the French dictionary for one set of words and, uh, you know what, Italian dictionary for another. They're, they're, they're similar, but they're not the same.
2: Well, there's a there's a wonderful wonderful passage in Gulliver's Travels, uh, where where it says why lawyers are so careful to write down every decision, because he says because because every decision against common sense uh, can then be used to serve as precedent for the next un, un, nonsensical decision down the road, and that's what we have. Back in the 1940s, Congress passed the law to regulate the growing of wheat on your own farm, even if it wasn't uh, for trade or for commerce, and uh, and and uh, uh, farmer Filburn up in Wisconsin uh, grew more wheat on his own farm for his own purposes, for making bread for his own family, for feeding his own cattle. He grew more wheat than the regulators in Washington, D.C., had said were allowed to him. And he was prosecuted for exceeding the wheat quota on his own farm, <laughs> even though everybody admitted none of his wheat was going to enter the market uh, because it was all being used on his own farm. And and uh, he uh, was prosecuted and went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court upheld the act of Congress uh, be, because if he had all sorts of farmers growing their own wheat, then they wouldn't need to buy wheat on the interstate market, and that would have an effect on the economy and therefore undermine Congress's policy of, of limiting the amount of wheat that could be grown. And so, and so they, upheld, they upheld this thing. Uh, you know, your your audience may may you know they could they could uh, do a web search and find a, a a TV video clip that Reason TV did some years ago, called "Wheat, Weed, and Obamacare," in which I'm inter- interviewed and and go through the whole transformation of the commerce power as a fairly limited power to the to the power we now know it to be uh, or the court tells us it is today, which is the power of Congress and worse unelected bureaucrats and administrative agencies to regulate every aspect of the co- economy and hence every aspect of our lives that they want to.
1: Well, you know, that's that's how I feel about it, too. I look at it this and it's very discouraging to me. I mean, I, I, one thing one thing that has survived this change in the Obamacare issue is all of the regulations that are put upon the medical co- organization. So most people are spending time filling out forms as opposed to seeing patients. And, and that leads me to a question. I know I haven't got much time to cover this vast subject, but isn't part of the problem that law has moved off the standard? It seemed to me that when I was younger, studying in school, we always went back to the natural law. We went back to some God-given rights, unalienable inalienable rights. And it seems now there's no reference to a standard. So obviously, if there's no standard, everything can run all over the place. Can you comment well, on
2: that? That's right. I mean, and this is, this is part of the, the mission of the Claremont Institute, I mean, to recover the principles of the American founding. And, and where do we find those principles? Uh, we've, not most uh, uh, in the Constitution, but in the prior document, the Declaration of Independence. And so there are a couple of very important principles there. What Thomas Jefferson said, wrote as self-evident truth, that all men, all human beings are created equal, and, and, a, and a consequence of that self-evident truth is that none of us have the authority to rule another without that other person's consent. So government based on consent, which means elections, is necessary. And then the representatives are only allowed to exercise the powers that are given to them by the consent of the people. This is the entire infrastructure of our constitutional system of government. And then the second piece of that is the reason we have those governments by consent is not to do whatever they want, but to secure the unalienable rights that every citizen has directly from their creator. Those rights we have come prior to government from a higher power. They're not gifts to, uh, to us from government. And right. so securing those individual rights puts natural constraints on the exercise of governmental power. We no longer, as a society, accept those two basic propositions. It's now become the majority view that government can do whatever it wants if it furthers some agenda, uh, what have you. And that's not what the foundation cornerstones of our system of government are.
1: Yeah, they've they've failed to look at the very word that you use, consent. You know, it, it means an election, yes, but it means an election that agrees with what it is they're doing. You can't just get consent because you voted for me, now I can do anything I want to do. I, I find this so so troubling, and um, I, I really don't know where we're gonna go with this, except that uh, we have to do something. And so, again, we're coming up to a break, and I'd like to, we've only got a few minutes left in the last segment of the show, but I'd like you to tell us what we can do. How do what do you suggest that we do to help, or to more inform, or to somehow get us back to both the Constitution and its predecessor? So thanks for listening, everybody, and stick with us, because I think we're going to hear some really good information in the next few minutes.
4: Better life, better business. Hi, I'm Christoph Naur. I'm a certified business and life coach, helping business owners increase productivity, profits, and improve personal life. I'm the founder of Balance 6, money, health, relationship, time management, self-improvement, and higher power. I coach business owners to work smarter not longer to have time for better personal life i hold you accountable for making time available to balance six to nurture yourself and your relationships and making more money with less stress get off the hamster wheel and i will show you the secrets to real success in case you're wondering about my accent i came from switzerland more than 30 years ago but i assure you My coaching will be in excellent English. Visit our website at balance6.biz. That's balance6.biz.
5: A lifetime ago, young naval aviator Tom McGuire took the oath of allegiance to support and defend the U.S. Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Now a San Francisco PD homicide inspector, McGuire hadn't thought about the oath in years, but that was all about to change. A famous local newspaper columnist had been murdered. For Maguire, there's an eerie chill of recognition about it, hearkening back to his days as a prisoner of war after being shot down in North Vietnam. A lifetime ago, another young naval pilot took that same oath. Also shot down in battle, he too spent time as a POW, same camp as Maguire. After 30 years, their lives were about to cross once again. But how and why after all these years? Multi-award-winning mystery author Dennis Kohler's The Oath can be found online or for an autographed copy at OathBook.org. That's oathbook.org, OathBook.org,
6: Here at Mentors Radio, we've been working hard to help you succeed in every way possible. That's why we're proud to let you know about our newest find, BetterCreditDeal.com. BetterCreditDeal.com links you to a credit processing company, cornerstone payment systems that truly shares your ethical values and that can give you lower rates immediately they don't just say it they prove it to you their commitment to ethical behavior is rock solid for example unlike most other credit processing companies something you may not have known before cornerstone refuses to process any porn related business they're not newbies either the company we recommend has more than 50 years' experience and provides 24 7 in house support. See what they can do for you today. Go to BetterCreditDeal.com. That's BetterCreditDeal.com.
0: BetterCreditDeal.com. And now, back to the mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.
1: Okay, we're back again, still talking with Dr. John Eastman about the Constitution, about uh, all of that's that's going on in the world and how our our representation, maybe it isn't even representation, we're getting legislation that is not truly representative of what we prefer and what they're allowed to do. So I know that we've got organizations out there and people like uh, Dr. Eastman who are fighting to restore the powers of the Constitution, and what I asked him before the break is, what You know, you're fighting every day. You're doing these things. You're filing these briefs, burning the midnight oil. You're fighting on the legal battlefield, which I guess only people like you can do. What do we, me and the people that are listening to all that you say today, what do we want us to do? What can you suggest we do?
2: Well, I'm going to suggest two things, and both of them. If you, if you like the work we're doing and think it's important, visit Claremont.org. And uh, click the donate button at the top and help. I mean, it, we're a nonprofit, so any uh, all of our uh, efforts are are funded through nonprofit donations. So help on that front all is, is always useful. Uh, more broadly, every citizen ought to be doing this. They need to. They need. Uh, and there's a wonderful book uh, that I was involved as as one of the contributors in that Heritage Foundation puts out um, that deals with. Um, you know, the original meaning of the Constitution. It's the Heritage Guide to the Constitution, and it's available online at heritage.org. And people should get, familiarize themselves with the clauses of the Constitution. Join the local Tea Party group in your area, which, which is an organization uh, that arose out of the recognition of the need to get back to the basic constitutional principles and understanding. Um, but, but more importantly than that, get involved in the elections. We, we you know we talk about a two party system in our country now we really don't we have a inside the beltway you know a, a a government party that includes some republicans and a lot of democrats and then we have some folks that are outside that establishment status quo that are trying to challenge uh, the 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 carbuncles that have grown on our governing authority uh, and get back to the original constitution uh, uh, make sure that you're electing people in primaries if necessary who are going to stick to the Constitution rather than go along to get along with all of the abuses and the violations of the Constitution that are a routine part of government in Washington these days.
1: Well, that's those great things. i tell you what I'm going to do is make sure that we put those on the website, uh, thementorsradio.com, www.thementorsradio.com, and we'll list that, we'll list the book, and we'll also list the Claremont, uh, Claremont.org there for us to go to, uh, I think that this has been a, a really a marvelous, uh, marvelous day. We've learned a lot. I tell you, you just mentioned about the two-party system, and I know you are in California. I'm in California. We don't have a two-party system here anymore, and I I suspect that a lot of people in the country don't even realize that. Well, that we I think- can. Go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, I, I think that's right. But but even if people have a different party name after their after their uh, office, it's important to recognize those that are going to stick with the Constitution and those that are not, whether they have a D or an R after their name.
1: Well, yeah, except that I'm referring to the fact that when power, when the power of a, a party becomes so overpowering, so to speak, they can change the rules. So now the rules are in California that the highest two people get go on from the primary to the general, and they can both be of one party. I mean, that seems to really defeat the entire purpose of what we're after here. Um, it, it does, yes. Yeah. So, uh, well, Dr. Eastman, I can only thank you so much for a wonderful uh, session today. Um, I hope everybody got as much out of it as I do. It is uh, marvelous to hear and, and actually reassuring to hear that people like you are out there working hard to try to at least give us some semblance of the, of the country's legislative powers that we thought we bought into uh, when we became citizens of this country one way or another. Um, and with that, I want to tell you, it wraps up the show for today. So thank you, Dr. Eastman. Thank you, Rick.
2: And, and you're already doing what I suggested, which is getting your audience informed about what they can do to help us, help us fight this battle.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that, and you know that is what we're trying to do. We're trying to get let, get people to understand because they don't; it's they're oblivious. But uh, and that's not in a bad way. It's just it doesn't get represented to them so that they can read it, understand it, and and do something about it. In any case, you've been listening to the Mentors Radio Show. I'm your host, Rick Brutico. We've been talking to law professor, constitutional expert, Dr. John Eastman. And don't forget to look like us on Facebook. And go to mentorsradio.com. We'll see you there. This is Rick Brutico, your mentor host, signing off for this edition of The Mentors and reminding you to tune in again next week at the same time, the same station. And remember, every day, in every way, do your part to make our world, and I might add our country, a little better. Thanks for listening.
0: It's been The Mentors, where remarkable CEOs challenge your thinking about life and business.